Welcome to Prose and Context, a podcast about life-giving teaching by the English Department at Lexington Christian Academy. This is Nancy Neese, and I teach international high school students at Lexington Christian Academy in intensive academic English programs. Today, I want to talk about one of the barriers facing non-native speakers of English as they transition from sheltered high school courses into non-sheltered courses, such as biology, chemistry, English, or history. And that barrier is everyday vocabulary, what I want to call sort of the invisible vocabulary, the words that you as a teacher don't even realize create a problem. An example, yesterday I posted online the homework, and I asked students to deliver a practice oral presentation on their assigned biography of a famous early American. When the students arrived today, no one was quite prepared simply to due to one misunderstood word, deliver. They have never heard the word deliver used in any other way than something that happens to a pizza. The idea of delivering a presentation was a collocation that they just didn't recognize. So no one felt responsible to come prepared to actually give a speech. This podcast is a short introduction to the ways, some of the ways that you can help. You know, introducing and teaching everyday vocabulary that you assume they already know beyond your content-specific vocabulary is one way your teaching can have a larger impact upon them and upon their success. I promise you, if you invest a small amount of time, it will boost their achievement and reduce your frustration. First, it's important to remind you how long it takes to acquire academic uh, vocabulary and academic language to reach a certain level of fluency that we want all students to have. A California study in 2000 found that ELL students in both bilingual and sheltered English programs where they're receiving lots of support, which we all know typically does not happen at all high schools, typically took three to five years for, to become proficient in oral English, but it took five to seven years to become proficient in academic English. And this timeline is generally an accepted time, timeline for K-12 ELL educators. This means we're looking at a long timeline, especially since these students at our, at our particular independent school, they arrive with us um, often in ninth grade and sometimes in eighth grade, and their fluency will continue to grow through college. Too often, however, we forget how slow language acquisition can be, and we become perplexed about how to support them as they go through our mainstream courses. So faculty then become really frustrated because they're not really sure what they're doing wrong and what the students aren't understanding, and, they, and so faculty tend to say things like, well, I guess we just can't hold them to the same standards, or I guess they just can't write well, so I'm not sure how to grade them. Or more commonly, well, I guess I'll wing it because the responsibility really has to lie with the intentional, explicit language instruction that um, the ELL specialists provide. However, uh, I want to suggest that you need to not simply delegate or give up or wing it uh, and assume that others are going to take care of continuing to help these students grow with everyday academic language. And my assumption, your idea that it's going to be covered elsewhere or that they're going to really just pick it up from you is a false assumption. So what do I mean about by academic vocabulary? 
or everyday academic vocabulary. At first, you might be thinking of the technical language of your discipline, naming the parts of the cell, such as the mitochondria or Golgi bodies, decoding the periodic table, or defining literary devices, such as metaphors, or narrative features, such as point of view or tone. These are tier three words, that is, words that are less commonly used in everyday life, except in more specialized communities, which share a discipline. Most non-native speakers join their native-speaking colleagues in the classroom and learn these words together. So this is not what I mean by academic vocabulary. They actually have a level playing field when they all start learning this at the same time. They can learn metaphor as your, as your native-speaking students can learn metaphor. So when I refer to explicit academic vocabulary instruction, I'm speaking of sort of the tier one and tier two words, which are the routine academic language of the classroom. I'm also speaking about like everyday idioms, the things that are just so common they're invisible to us. Many teachers say, well, yes, I have a lot of international students in my class, but I'm not really a language teacher. It's hard enough to get through the content. And I just want to say, I, I'm empathetic. Of course it is. But here's the thing. If you're invested in having your international students equipped to learn your discipline, then you might find this small investment in teaching explicit instruction around everyday vocabulary of, uh, with lower level words might be worthwhile. At our school, many times, we international students can comprise a third of a classroom. So it's really not a great thing if we're leaving a third of our students in the dust just because they can't follow what we're saying. So here's how the problem shows up. In an early morning biology study session, targeted international students designed to help them understand how to master material for the upcoming tests, students were told orally to write their answers on the test by summarizing briefly using keywords or bullet points. They took the test, and most did not finish. When I debriefed them as to why they were so flummoxed, it turns out it was their attempt to write complete answers in full sentences, really, which is really hard for them. When I spoke to the faculty member, she reminded me she'd specifically told them to use bullet points and keywords. However, when I spoke to my students, they said, what are bullet points? What are keywords? They simply had no idea that those small black dots that we use in lists as indicators were called bullet points. In addition, having been told in various classes that their short answers lacked the sort of robust clarity that native speakers have, they overcompensated by writing in full sentences to make sure they were understood. Another example comes from a class I'm teaching that shelters the LL learners in writing analytical academic papers. I had given them reading questions on Ernest Hemingway's Hills Like White Elephants, a short story about the fracturing of a relationship, a text whose meaning relies totally upon accurate inference from tightly rendered dialogue. As I read their answers to the reading questions, skipping over all the grammar issues, I quickly discovered that they lacked the most basic vocabulary words with which to analyze the story. Their writing was flat and uninformed, or it was so labyrinthine, I just had to use my like, ELL teacher eye to figure out what, what their intent was. But it's not that they lacked an understanding of the text. I could tell that they got it. It's that their ability to speak was really crippled by the tiny doorway of their limited academic vocabulary. 
So, for example, although I had defined the uncommon words or the foreign words in the text, such as absinthe or anis del toro, and although I'd explained you know, the metaphorical meanings of the, of the uh, title of white elephants, as a white elephant being uh, an elephant, uh, um, white elephant being an unwanted object, and an elephant in the room as the thing that cannot be spoken, I hadn't realized how they were not equipped to discuss the most rudimentary textual features, such as the attitude of the man and the girl towards each other. Because the attitudes require just a basic working vocabulary about attitudes and they didn't have those words. So they couldn't write an effective response to the essay. So in class, I began a brainstorm on the board. What words did they know to describe what they'd read? Collectively, they came up with the words tense and angry. Then I hit a wall of silence. They had no access to all the kinds of descriptions for attitudes that they'd need to write effectively, and that had the kind of nuance and care that I expected of them in their analytical writing. So as we together describe relationships they knew, we came up with words such as indifferent, apathetic, hostile, condescending, disdainful, argumentative, disengaged, distanced, alienated, critical, aloof, coddling, clueless, matter of fact, vulnerable, provocative, annoying. You can see how some of these are higher level words, but most of them are not that uh, sophisticated. They're just everyday words we use when we're describing how people respond to each other. And by the way, the fact that they're negative is just because that's what was going on in this particular story. So I wanted them to discuss the power dynamics and how they shifted during the story uh, with, uh, in the couple, but they needed these kinds of words to be able to talk about that. Without them, they were sort of limited to saying, well, he feels annoyed and she feels tense. So then I really would be able to see you know, their, their insights. So as we parse the difference between, say, words like defended, he's defended, and he, or she's defensive, and we discussed what engaged and disengaged mean, they started to have a richer vocabulary. And they had, because they, had, they were actually familiar with many of these words. It's just that they're not easy to recall for them at the moment that they need them. And they can't easily just put them into practice to write something that's analytical and literary. So with the, having them up on the board, we uh, began our discussion of the story. And they were able to draw on this lexicon that was right there and discuss what was going on in the story in a much richer way. I discovered, you know, they, they might know the word, for instance, defense, as in military, or hitting back when attacked. But when it comes to defensive or defended, which describes psychological states, they don't know those words, just like this morning with the, the deliver a speech versus deliver a pizza. They only knew the one context for that word. And why would they know another context? Because we're constantly shifting the context in which we use words. And that's sort of the invisible language I'm talking about, is that we're using words in ways that are, that, that are simply um, multivalent, and we don't bring them into our discussion in a, in a 
uh, considered in an explicit way. So, you know, shaft might be refer to a length of a piece of hair, but it also refers to uh, a coal mine, and it also refers to its slang for betraying someone. And so it's only when we teach these contexts explicitly that they actually can incorporate them into their own uh, vocabulary, internal vocabulary lists. So a final area when you can where you can support your international students is by rephrasing the common slang that you use. So we say so often things like this that are very simple. You know, are you kidding me? Or you bet. Or you can say that again. Or you're telling me. But all these expressions really revi um, rely on the in their inverse meaning, right? And so they are not uh, patently clear to our non-native speakers. And here's a few more common ones. Uh, he's upset because he thinks he bombed the test. Oh, pass in any late essays, everyone. ASAP. Oh, that'll drive him up a wall. Oh, Giovanna, could you recap that? Um, let me snag you after class. Oh, that's a 24-7 job. I'm um, sorry about that. I'm not on my A-game today. So each of these expressions is so idiomatic as to be nearly opaque to non-native speakers. And yet we use them all the time. And we don't even know we've lost them. We, we as English teachers always say, pay attention to your audience. But we as English teachers are not always aware, or biology teachers or, or um, history teachers, we're not even always aware of our own audiences. So what can you do? First. Consider where in your classroom you rely on material that's so second nature to you that it actually shows up as invisible vocabulary. Think of your everyday language. Now, you don't have to give every single meaning of every word you present, like whether it's shaft or defensive. Teach the ones you need for your context. But as you're teaching it, use the positives. Use ways that you express the same idea again in new language so that they come at it from several different ways, and they can have a chance to absorb it. Put the word on the board. Put several words on the board, everyday words, as you're talking about them. When it comes to slang, like such as ASAP, you know, rephrase. Say, OK, hand those in ASAP, or at least by the end of the day. So they have another chance to sort of hear it in another way. Finally, when you're giving them instructions, ask native and non-native speakers in your classrooms to parrot back what they understand. When you say something simple like summarize your findings or list your results or uh, tell, you know, um, try to describe the difference between procedures and summaries, I mean, you don't describe it, you just say it, they don't necessarily know the difference even though you think that they must. And you might be surprised that some of your Native speakers don't necessarily know the difference between writing down procedures and writing down a summary. So try teaching some of the language that you're using in your discipline that's not the high-level words, but the everyday language, everyday language of instructions and of teaching, and teach them explicitly to them. Put the word on the board, define it, ask, them, ask students for uh, synonyms, and uh, join both, both groups, both native and non-native speakers, in that process. If you write in, say, third person for lab reports, 
You can have like a three-minute game in class where students describe other students using only the third person and then switch to first person and just have some fun with it. Many lessons like that can help them understand why writing in the third person, what writing in the third person actually means, uh, and give them some practice. I know from talking to my biology teacher friends that even for native speakers, that's a difficult thing to do. So use the positives, be explicit, recognize above all how you use invisible vocabulary, and then make an effort to do some explicit language instruction to, of vocabulary to your native and non-native speakers together. I promise you that if you do some of these things, they'll reward you for it. And as a teacher, what's not to love about that? Thanks for joining us for this episode of Prose and Context, a podcast for life-giving teaching by the English Department at Lexington Christian Academy. Please subscribe to our podcast and come back again next week.